I want to hear what the Lord has to say. And so, Father, we ask that you would just anoint Dad, Dan, uh, this morning, that, Lord, we would have eyes to see the glories of Jesus, that, Lord, your word would break into our spirit, and it would rearrange our furniture so that, Lord, we could be in proper alignment and orientation to you, and that the kingdom of God could come with power in our lives and through our lives because we're rightly aligned because of the word of the Lord that goes forth with clarity and conviction. So, Lord, right now, just say this prayer with me. Jesus, anoint my ears, not just my ears on my head, but my ears in my heart to receive the word of the Lord today. In Jesus' name, we all said amen. One more time, give it up for Dad. Hallelujah. Well, good morning. And so it's a treat for me to be here on Father's Day to be with both my sons. I'm never with my sons, and both of them are fathers. I have uh, seven grands because of the work of those two sons. <laughs> and their wives. Yeah, I'm, I, I like that. I, I honor my sons. It's good. It's good to be with you. I feel like I have a word that the Lord wants me to preach, so I'm going to preach it. Um, and I think it's, it's going to be about God's design and destiny and desire for man, and then what went wrong, and what is the dilemma of the church today, and how do we fix it? It should take a little while. But in the beginning, God created man in his image. You guys know that verse, Genesis 1:26. In the image of man, he created them both male and female. He created them in his likeness. And we know that he's talking about spiritually. He's not talking about physically. Because if he was talking about we're in his image physically, then I would think that God was 6'5", 350. <laughs> and you all would have your own perception of what you think God's size is. Am I right? So he has to be talking about in the image of God spiritually because God is spirit. That's why John 4 says you have to worship him in spirit and in truth, right? In the beginning, the spirit was hovering over the waters. It wasn't a body that was hovering over the waters. It was a spirit that because God is spirit. Come on. Are you with me? So he created us in his image. And, and it says in, in Genesis 2.6 that at that time in in the world, there was no rain that ever came down, but there was these streams that came up from the depths of the earth that watered the whole surface of the earth. But then in Genesis 2-7, it says, then God formed man out of the dust. And I got to thinking, how, how did he find dust if the whole world is already watered? He would have to find mud or clay or something that would stick together, but this, that the writer, though, Moses specifically used the word dust. And I got some revelation on that. God wanted us to know he formed us out of something that there's no way it can ever hold together unless he fills it. Amen. Dust just blows around, it shakes up, and you can't hold yourself together unless the Spirit of God comes in you and holds you together. Are you with me, church? So it says that he formed man out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Whoa. 
And then he said, you have the planet, you have the universe, it's yours, rule it. Rule the angels, name everything. This is your dominion, Adam. I'm going to let you multiply and cover the whole surface of the earth with my image people. Come on, is that, what a deal. Is that amazing? So, so I got this guy who can name 500,000 species without Google. He can name the, the, the stars and the constellations. He can name the animals, the plants, the rocks, the rivers. The, he can name everything. He has names. He has the ability to talk with God. He was a brilliant creation. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to think of the potential that God put in a man. Think about that. Huh. Then one day, he's out doing whatever the guy that runs the universe does. I don't even know what, what did he do in those days. I don't know. He, he walked around naked. I don't like that. I, I, ah, that's gross, man. I like clothes. <laughs> but he's walking around eating grapes, doing whatever you do. And he comes home and his wife says, hey, what do you think about this fruit, man? This serpent told me it would be good. And they ate from the wrong tree and it messed everything up. We had the whole planet. And because one couple had one bad meal, look what happened. You don't think there's consequences? One meal? It's not that good, man. I can't wait to meet Adam. I, when God's not looking in heaven, I'm going to do this to him, man, because he's the one that caused all this pain for us, all the suffering, all the sorrow. God had a good plan. One person. And, and Paul says that Eve was deceived. Paul doesn't say Adam was deceived. Adam, Adam wasn't deceived. Adam was just stupid. Satan wasn't talking to Adam. Satan was talking to Eve. And Adam just came in and she goes, what do you think? Oh, I don't care. He didn't even pray about nothing. Are you kidding? So he wasn't deceived. He was just like dumb. And we fell. And now God can't let him in that garden. And now there's pain in everybody's body. And now everybody dies. And now there's anger and there's prejudice and there's immorality and there's sickness and there's suffering and there's cancer and there's death and every, everywhere you look there's no solution why because one couple had one meal and they had a whole universe and they gave it up for one meal so you go about several thousand years into the future and and I get to Psalms. See, I've already gone from Genesis to Psalms, so we're going to get all the way to Revelation. It's not going to take that long. Are you, are you happy? So, so you get to like the Psalms 8, and all of a sudden the psalmist is writing about all the creation that God has created. But in verse 4 he says, What is man that you're mindful of him? I mean, when, when, he, when God is mindful, you know, God has a big mind. And when God's mind is full of thoughts about us, that means there's probably lots of thoughts. In one of the other Psalms, it says if we were to count the thoughts he has about us, they would outnumber all the grains of sand. And all the thoughts are good ones. I don't know how he does that, because if I was God, I would have pulled the plug a long time ago on us. You know what I'm saying? 
because we just keep breaking his heart over and over and over again. All he does is extend mercy and grace and gives us more opportunities and more chances and we go good until something gets hard or something happens and we just derail and then God keeps having mercy again and oh, I'm glad he's God. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he's God? But it says, what is man? He doesn't say what is like uh, the Big Dipper or what is the blue whale or what is the zebra that you're so mindful? He doesn't use any of the other creation. You know, he picks man. And really, if you pick that little verse apart, he's saying, what in the world is this man? I can't stop thinking about him. I can't stop thinking about him. I mean, I wake up. I, th- I don't ever sleep. I mean, all day long for millennial. I mean, I can't, I can't get man off of my mind. That's what God is saying. You know why I think that verse is there? Because God still believes the potentially put in the first man is in every single man and woman that's ever lived. And he can't stop thinking that one day, somehow, somewhere, somebody's actually going to believe they are who God says they are. (sighs) What is man? I can't stop thinking about him. When you sleep tonight, God will still be thinking about you. When you go to work tomorrow, God will still be thinking about you. Come on. When you have your hardest day, God will still be thinking about you. When you're at your highest moment, God will still be thinking about you. Why? Because he thinks somewhere, somehow, someone is going to believe they are who God says they are. The next verse says, and the son of man that you can't stop visiting him. And I love that. You know what that means to me? Every once in a while, some human being lives up to God's dream. Look at me. Everybody look at me. Every once in a while, somebody like Martin Luther lives up to God's dream and it changes the course of history. Or somebody like an Apostle Paul. Or somebody like a Peter. Or how about Jesus himself? Did he change history? You see, look at me, church. Please look at me. Don't look down. Don't look at your Bible. Look at me. I believe God keeps thinking about us because he thinks that there's a possibility that all of us humans would live at a certain level of faith and peace and confidence and boldness and dominion and authority. But most of the time, the human race settles just to live as survivors trying to get from one day to the next. And every once in a while, somebody shows up and you know they've lived up to God's dream. Like a LeBron James, like a Kobe Bryant, like Zion Williams. I mean, how did God stuff all that ability in a 6'8", 280 guy that can jump over the backboard? I don't understand it, except it had to be God-given. Is anybody with me here? I mean, you think, you think well, is it, just, is it just athletes and religious people? No, Henry Ford. We ought to thank God that he put that dream in Henry Ford, and now we can drive. How about Steve Jobs? Or Bill Gates? I mean, every once in a while, don't you? Why do we remember people that stand out? Why do we think, why do the names, why do do certain people have such name recognition? Because they lived up to a potential that God dreams and believes is in every one of his creation. But most of us settle for survival. That's the introduction. 
God's plan was that we would have dominion and command the angels and have authority and run a planet and run a universe. And that was his plan. Our sin messed it up. But still God can't stop thinking about us. <laughs> no matter how bad we messed it up, his thoughts towards us are always good. You know, one example would be that Jeremiah 29, 11 passage. That everybody loves to quote that passage. They're getting ready to go into 70 years of exile. And his plans are still to prosper him and not to harm him and give him a hope and give him a future. God's plans never change. His thoughts never change before his children. They're always good. Hmm. So now I want to tell you why I think man settles for this when God thinks that we should be living this. Would that be a good thing to talk about? Come on, somebody say amen. amen. I first saw someone do this in a sermon when my boy preached baccalaureate when he was a senior in high school. Chad, I was at his baccalaureate service, and he said, God designed us to live up here, but most of us live down here. So I stole that from him, like, how many years ago that was? I don't know how many years ago that was. Isn't that good news? Turn to 3 John. I'm going to read a couple of verses from 3 John. It's right there before Revelation. Third John, right before Jude, Third John, we'll read the first six verses, Third John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers, for I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you're walking in truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you're actually faithful in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well. Send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Verse 2 is really the, 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 the theme of what I want to talk about. He's praying for this friend of his named Gaius, this apostle John. He says, Beloved, I pray that in every area of your life you would prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. My, my, my premise for my talk this morning is I think what holds mankind here instead of here is the condition of his soul, which is what Pastor Scott was talking about this morning. If you're a believer and you've been washed by the blood and filled with God's Spirit, your spirit is fine. It's your soul that limits you. Come on, are you with me, church? Yes. You know, we're, we're, we're three parts, right? We are three parts. We're spirits that live in a body that have a soul. You guys believe that, right? We are spirits that live in a body that have a soul. Jesus breathed into dust, or God breathed into dust. His spirit, we became a living soul. I read today in the last page of Ecclesiastes that when we die, our spirit goes back to God, our body turns back to dust, and our soul goes at rest until the three are united again because we can't live without all three parts. Come on, you guys. You need to hear this. It's very important. So, so the spirit part of us is the part of us that relates to God because God is spirit. Our spirit and our spirit. God, God wishes he could, could commune with us by the spirit because that's the most, that's the part that's like him. 
But since we don't live by faith, most of us live by sight. He has to reveal himself to us in ways other than the Spirit, and that's why he has to keep doing it over and over and over again, because unless we get deep revelation by the Spirit, we're easily talked out of that revelation that came by any other form. Example, when Elijah killed 850 prophets and stopped the rain and started the rain and called down fire and got a call from Jezebel and ran and hid 800 miles away on two meals. God did not get his attention with lightning, with fire, with wind, with an earthquake. He got his attention with a still, small voice. What is that? It's the Spirit. God's Spirit spoke to the spirit of Elijah, called him out of his fear, made him go back and face the things that he was afraid of, and history was changed because he got a revelation by the Spirit. When you get a revelation by the Spirit, you can't be talked out of it by emotion or by circumstances. Are you with me? It's, it's like Romans eight twenty six. When you don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes in you with groans that you can't utter. What is that? The Spirit of God making deposits in your spirit because God's Spirit knows what's coming against you next week or next month or next year, and He's equipping you and solidifying you and empowering you so that when it comes, you don't even know how you stood because none of us are good enough to stand on our own. But God's given us revelations that we don't even know how they're getting into us, but He loves us enough to intercede in us according to the will of the Father. Now, aren't you glad? So the spirit part of us is the part of us that relates to God. Are you with me? James says the spirit that he put in us, his spirit yearns jealously to keep that connection. Another example. Remember when Mary was like 12 or 13 and the angel shows up and says, hey, you're highly favored. You're going to get knocked up. I'm paraphrasing that. <laughs> That's what it meant. She's going to have child. And she goes, how can that be? I've never known a man. Come on. I don't know how that could be. What revelation was she getting? She was getting revelation by the Spirit because God's Word is Spirit, right? Amen. And so when God sends His Word through a messenger, that's the Spirit revelation that God's trying. She received that revelation by her Spirit because she says, let it be done to me according to your Word. And getting a revelation from the Spirit of God to her spirit produced the manifestation of something that would reveal the Spirit to everybody on the planet. Come on. So Mary hears that her older cousin's knocked up. Think about that. Mary's too young, and it's impossible for her to have a kid, but the revelation of the Spirit was so profound in her life that it produced a child. Come on. A spirit-to-a-spirit revelation produced the Word of God made flesh. Somebody had to agree with the revelation. And then Elizabeth gets pregnant, and she's past childbearing years. So Mary hears about it. She goes outside of town into Bethany, wherever they live, and she walks in the room, and it says immediately when she walked in the room, Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, and nobody said anything. Mary didn't lay hands on her. And it says the baby inside Elizabeth's womb leaped and was filled with the Spirit. Uh, come on. Now, look, 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 
Jesus is, Jesus is not inside Mary's womb reading the Jerusalem Tribune. Jesus is in there asleep like every other baby, but he's so full of the Spirit because he came by a revelation of the Spirit to a spirit. Are you with me? So all he is is a, is, 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 is a body full of the Spirit. And there's so much Spirit that he can give a revelation to a spirit in another body that's in another womb without ever having to say one word that it could intellectually surmise or accept. It was all Spirit to Spirit. John lives 33 years with that revelation until the end when he's in a cell. And he says, please go ask Jesus if he's really the Messiah. Remember? Because of his circumstances now are causing him to question the revelation he got in his spirit. And Jesus sends back word, tell him what you see. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the lame walk, the poor hear the gospel. And tell him, blessed are those who are not offended because of my word. Here's my warning. If you have a revelation by the Spirit, don't ever allow your circumstances to talk you out of it. God gave you the revelation by your Spirit so that you would live by it because He wants us to be Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-driven. Come on. Amen? So the Spirit part of us is the part of us that relates to God. Would you guys agree with that? The body part of us is the part of us that relates to the senses. I mean, I had, I had a roll of sushi last night. It was good. My body felt it. Come on. The night before, I had a bowl of that corn at the Avila Farmer's Market with the mayonnaise and the Parmesan cheese and the lime and the salt and the pepper. And my body felt it the next day. Come on, your body is the part of you that relates to the senses, what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you touch. And thank God we get new bodies sometime. Thank God these are going to go back to dust and we'll get new ones that you don't have to count calories and fat grams and carbohydrates. Don't you, aren't you glad there'll be all gluten in heaven? I'm so happy. When I wake up on the other side, I'll be like probably twice my size. God will have fooled all of us, and we thought thin was healthy. Come on, I'm joking. Maybe. I don't have no clue. I haven't been there. I just know that the body is the part of us that relates to the senses. God doesn't want to deal with us in the sense realm. You know, God is so gracious and kind to the human race. You know, in Acts 2, if he would have found 120 people that could receive a revelation by the Spirit only, he would not have had to send something that sounded like wind. He would not have had to send something that looked like fire. Come on, you guys. He, he would not have had to give them an ability to speak another language. He wouldn't have had to do things that the senses can perceive if he'd have had a room of people that could just receive revelation by their Spirit. That's how good our God is. He'll do whatever it takes to let us know he's in the midst. But his preference is spirit to spirit. I don't want to talk about the spirit. And I don't want to talk about the body. I want to talk about the soul. 
The soul is not the part of you that relates to God. The soul is not the the body is the part of you that relates to the, the, the soul is the part of you that relates to you and others. Listen to this. Your soul is your mind, your thoughts, your will, your emotions, your memories, your hurts, your scars, your wounds, your education, your personality, your soul is the part of you that relates to you and relates to others. That's why if you find somebody that you really get along with, oh, my soulmate. And if you don't get along with them, oh, my cellmate. <laughs> I have never heard anybody say, oh, my body mate. Oh, she's my spirit mate. No. It's your soul, man. Your soul is the part of you that relates to others. Am I right? Come on, when, when Psalms 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's with me, bless, it's, it's talking about someone who never forgets all that God's done. Because if you never forget all that God's done, then your soul would always be blessing the Lord. Are you with me, church? The problem is our mind, our will, our emotions, our memories, our hurts, our defense mechanisms, all those things have a tendency to snuff out and cause us to have short-term memory when it comes to the goodness of God. Exodus 17 is the dilemma of all Christian walk. Is God really among us? Isn't that the question? Because if he was really among us, would this, 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 this? Hmm. I think about people who must have had good souls because... John wouldn't have prayed for Gaius to have a prospering soul and for the soul to be in health unless it was possible because John wouldn't have prayed a prayer that wasn't like a possible prayer that could be answered and it would be written in the Bible unless God wanted it to be in there. So I think there's a possibility that people in this room today could have a prospering soul and your soul could be in health and if that was the case, every other area of your life would be prospering and be in health. One guy's happy. <laughs> First of all, what, what, gives, what, what gives him the, 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 the motivation to pray this prayer for his friend Gaius is if you read all five of those verses, six of those verses, the word truth just keeps coming out. The word truth, you walk in truth. You're known for your truth. You're known for your goodness. You're known for your truth, your way of truth, your life of truth. You're walking in truth. Because when you're walking in truth, truth sets you free. So from truth to truth to truth to truth is freedom to freedom to freedom to freedom. And if you're walking in truth, all you do is good things to people. I know when my soul is healthy, I can go through a drive-thru and grab somebody's hand handing me a Diet Coke and pray for them because God tells me what they're doing or what they need and they start crying. But when my soul's not healthy, I don't even notice the person handing me the drink. I'm only ever doing as good as my soul's doing. My spirit is one with God. It's not, my spirit's not my problem. My soul is my problem. When your soul's good, you're not afraid to be known publicly with people. I mean, he wrote down, I love Gaius. He's my beloved brother. I'm praying that God would prosper him in every way of his life and let him be in health so he overflows in every area of his life just as his soul prospers. How would you like your soul to be so healthy that you could actually pray that kind of prayer for other people besides yourselves? Seriously, wouldn't you hope somebody on the planet 
was doing good enough in their soul that they could look at you and say, I pray that God would bless you in every way and not have a hidden agenda. (laughs) Come on, man. I know most people in the church are not healthy in their souls because they're afraid to be seen with people publicly unless they think it'll help their career. But if your soul's healthy, you don't care what anybody else thinks. You just find people that are walking in truth and you want to heap blessing on them like crazy. (sighs) Jesus, I think, operated with a good soul. What do you think? I think he was prospering. You know, this this prosperity gospel has given prosperity a bad name. Biblical prosperity is not hoarding things for yourself so you can then self-indulge, come on, and have all your own needs and desires that are tainted by a personal agenda, which is not love. That's not what biblical prosperity is. You know what biblical prosperity is? It's having more than you need, so there's always something you can help others with instead of always needing you can be giving. And so to prosper, listen to this. To prosper in every area means you have, you have compassion. that you, you have compassion to give. You have encouragement to give. Come on. You, you, you have hospitality to give. You have finances to give. Come on. You have hope to give. You have discernment to give. You have freedom to give. If, if, he, if the prayer is to be answered, every single area of your life, if it's prospering, it means you can actually be a good neighbor to everybody you bump into. If you're only prospering intellectually, you could be like the rabbi or the Pharisee or the Sadducee. They find a guy who needs help, but they're not prospering in their soul. They're only prospering academically. So they don't want to be unclean. And so they bypass the Samaritan. They can't even be a good neighbor, even though their mind is full of Scripture. To be prospering in your soul means every single area of your life, you'd have more than enough. And you could actually help people in their time of need. I'm preaching the truth. So here's Jesus. As far as I know, he was probably prospering because he never had like a bad day of ministry. Which, which if, listen, if, I pray that you would prosper and be in health in all respects, which means ministry, gifts, fruit, discernment. Peace. Every area means every area. Am I right? So, so let's just, let's just let's Jesus. I mean, can you imagine Jesus being a young boy? I, ma- I imagine his siblings hated him. You know, that's mom's favorite. <laughs> he always makes the bed. He makes our beds. He just makes us look bad. <laughs> can you imagine? But it says he never sinned, which means he was prospering in all ways, even as a young boy. Come on. They didn't even believe he was the Messiah until after the resurrection. His own brothers and sisters said he was whacked out and demon-possessed sometimes. Come on, you guys. It didn't get, he didn't get offended, which means he was probably prospering in every area. So here's his ministry. Let's pull some out. Like the story of, of, of Matthew uh, 9, Mark 2, Luke 5, big room crowded they can't get to him and all of a sudden four guys cut a hole and Jesus looks up 
And because he's prospering in his soul, he doesn't see a lawsuit. He doesn't see water damage. He doesn't see who do we, where do we get the hold of the trustees and the lawyers. He doesn't see who has the audacity to do that. He doesn't see that because when you're not prospering in every way, you see things that maybe God would be using to bring the next move of the Spirit into your midst as a distraction or a problem. But when you're prospering in every way, like Jesus, he sees their faith. Wow. <gasps> That's a good one. <sighs> what pleases him? Faith. Let the guy down. He's on a mat. Jesus doesn't see his faith, so his soul's probably not prospering. But he sees their faith. What if we were a church like the four instead of like the one? Because if our souls were prospering and we're in health, we wouldn't care what it cost, what people thought, what our reputation was. There would be no mountain too high, no valley too low, no river too wide, no barrier too big. We would get the person to the help they needed regardless because that would be a part of prosperity. He looks at this guy and he says, son, now that blows my mind. The guy's on a mat, he can't walk, he's paralyzed, and Jesus' best he can come up with is son. Oh, he knows what he needs. In fact, in Mark 2, 5, the word is child. Jesus knows right where the guy's soul got hurt. Jesus probably knows how come he's on that mat. He doesn't say, in the name of myself, be healed. What did he say? Son, child. He wants him to know, I accept you. I know you were too sick to get to me. Aren't you glad you had four guys who didn't care what it cost they were going to get you to me? And I see you, and I accept you, and I value you, and I want you to know you're not a castaway. You're not a second-hand, second-class. I, I love your son. That's revival enough right there. Amen. When you know he's your dad. Amen. Then he says, you're forgiven. <laughs> I love Jesus. He hadn't shed one drop of blood yet. He's flowing around forgiveness. How'd he pull that off? Oh, he was living righteous, which he was the restorer of everything that was lost. Righteousness is the, the antidote for unrighteousness. Come on, he's living righteousness, and he knows what that guy needs. He's his son. He needs to know his identity, and he needs to know you're forgiven. Then everybody in the room that's looking at the problem instead of the promise thinks he's blaspheming. And then he looks around because he can discern because if you're prospering in your soul, you have discernment. That would be a, that would be a part of all respects. Which do you guys think is easier for me to forgive this guy's sins or to get him off the mat? Just so you know, I'm not whacked out. I do have authority. Rise up. Isn't that a good story? Yes. I want to be, be a life that's always like one of the four. The problem is most of us are like the one. Right. Praying that we'll find somebody that cares enough to get us to the help inside we're dying for. Are you guys with me? Most of the time I find myself on the mat emotionally. Are you with me? I want to live my life as one of the four. 
one of the ones. In fact, I can tell sometimes how sick a person's soul is by how many people it takes to get you help. I mean, does it take you five divorces? Does it take you four people? Does it take you 18 years of being bent? Does it take you 12 years of bleed? I mean, a lot of times, or does it just take... <laughs> John 5, Jesus is just minding his own business, walking by a pool called Bethesda. Everybody at Bethesda is sick. That's why they're there. They, they believed that if they could get in the water first, when the angel would stir the water, that they would be healed. So there must have been some time in history where it happened, and it wouldn't draw such a crowd that would just keep sitting around a pool waiting for the water to be stirred. Are you with me? Jesus shows up and finds a guy who's been sick for 38 years. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, the first thing out of his mouth, hey, do you want to get well? That's insulting. Duh! I've been laying here 38 years! But the question reveals why he asked it, because the guys answered, I don't have anybody to help me. Every time the water stirred, I try to get in, but somebody jumps in ahead of me. I don't have any family that believes in me. I don't have any pension because I could never keep a job because of my physical condition. I don't have no social security because it's already run out. And I'm just a burden on society and I'm a castaway. And I'm a victim. Nobody helps me. Jesus, I love Jesus. Pick up your own dadgum mat. <laughs> I added the dadgum. I added the dadgum. It's not in there. But Jesus was thinking it. He was thinking it. Jeez, this is what Jesus says. Because Jesus is prospering in his soul so he knows what we need to hear. Do something for yourself, man. Quit waiting on everybody else to help you. Pick up your mat. And he picked it up. It worked! Jesus didn't say, be healed in my name, my, my, my. He said, do something for yourself. Oh my. I could have done this 38 years ago. This is unbelievable. He runs into some religious people. Why are you carrying your mat? It's church day. Oh, this guy told me to pick it up, and it actually works. <laughs> he bumps into Jesus a little later. First thing out of Jesus' mouth. It's even more bizarre than the first thing he said to him. Stop sinning, or something worse could happen. What could be worse than 38 years on a mat? Oh, hell. It's forever. Another story, Luke 18. Jesus is running around through towns. He's got a procession coming with him. But most of them are there to try to catch him in his words to prove he's a heretic. They're traveling with him to catch him in his words. They're not traveling with him because they believe in what he's doing. And this one guy named Bartimaeus hears about him. And he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. And so the crowd, who's not doing good in their soul, because they don't recognize the cry of faith, they recognize a distraction. They go to him and try to quiet the man down. The more they tried to quiet him down, the, the louder he yelled, Jesus finally called his crowd that's traveling with him trying to prove him wrong. Why don't you go get that man? Because I want you guys to see what I can do in front of your unbelief with one guy who believes. 
In this story, I think the only guy with a good soul is Bartimaeus. I think the whole crowd that's traveling with Jesus is sick in their soul. Because they don't recognize faith. If you were prospering in every area, you would recognize faith or flesh. Come on, you guys. So they bring him to him. He goes, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, Jesus' questions, the guy's blind. What do you want me to do for you? I'd like to say, oh, your faith has made you whole. Go. <clears throat> right in front of all the unbelievers. <laughs> Yay. I wonder if our souls got so healed that it didn't matter if anybody else in the room agreed or believed. I guess one of those type miracles would maybe <laughs> tip the scales on the unbelievers. You guys are quiet, aren't you? <laughs> Last story, Luke 13. It's one of my favorites. Jesus shows up at the Bent Lady Church. She's been bent for 18 years. Hi, I'm the Bent Lady. It doesn't say she's out in the streets prostituting or gangbanging or playing the lotto or whatever. She, she's in the church. She's a church lady. Hi, I'm the Bent Lady, 18 years. I think she worked in the nursery, because when you're bent over, you can pick kids up real easy. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to bend down, because you're already bent, right? Or she can help with the books, because you can sit at a desk bent and type easy, right? I mean, she's a church lady, 18 years. You say, well, that's a physical. No, it says it wasn't physical. It says she had a spirit of infirmity. Jesus said, how could this daughter of faith, daughter of Abraham be allowed to be infirmed all these years, right? So it wasn't a physical deal, it was a soul deal. No, time out. Some of you may be sick physically and have a good soul. That's okay then, because if your soul's good, you wouldn't be offended at this message anyway. Because you could discern what you needed. But if your soul's not sick, you could be offended at a message like this. If your soul's not healthy, you get it? Because some people just have a physical condition that has nothing to do with your soul. God can deal with that too. The only reason I'm preaching this is, I think from doctor's reports that I've read, because I have a lot of time to read, that over 90% of all physical ailments start with emotional pressure and worry and depression and anxiety and things we can't deal with. And then it starts breaking down the functions of our bodies. Are you with me? So, Jesus shows up. Now, this is a church where a lady's been infirmed 18 years. And nobody's healthy enough in their soul to know what she needs, except the first-time visitor shows up at the Bent Lady Church. <laughs> it's like, who is this guy in the sandals? He just walks in. And the first thing it says is he sees her. Because if your soul's healthy, you see what people need. You don't see symptoms. Come on, most of the time when I'm not doing good in my soul, I feel sympathy for symptoms. But when your soul's prospering, you guys, you don't see the symptoms. You see what's beneath the symptoms. Come on, you guys. You see the deep truth that would really set people free. You can see that if your soul's doing good. So Jesus walks in, and he looks at this lady. He didn't view her as the bent lady. It says he saw her. And God doesn't look at us like man does. God looks at the heart. He doesn't see symptoms, man. 
or he would ask different questions like, do you want to get well? He wouldn't ask that if he didn't see the symptoms. He, he has to see the source of the symptoms. Are you with me? Come on. So he sees her, and he calls her to him. <laughs> now, if I see a bent lady, I don't want to call her to me. I want to go pray for her. I feel sorry for her bentness. He says, come here. And then he looked at her. You're free. He didn't say, be healed in my name. He said, you're free. The King James says, you're loosed. You're loosed. First time visitor. How can somebody be so bent over in their soul for 18 years and it takes one person, one time to come and change the situation when the church is supposed to be the body of Christ? See, my dilemma is this message is I think the soul condition of the church is why we have the results we have. It's not our spirits. You wouldn't be here if you didn't love God in your spirit. You all love God. You wouldn't be here. Come on. It's Father's Day. You'd be somewhere grilling hot dogs. Am I right? Now, I want to give you some good news, and then I'm going to try to land the plane. It's a big plane. It's not a little Piper Cub. It's like a 767. It's got, I can soar for like 500 miles, even out of gas. <laughs> but I'm going to land it. I'm going to land it. So, so, so here. Oh, Jesus. I want to remove condemnation from anybody in this room because I don't think that soul sickness sends you to hell. Because Jesus had a time in his life when his soul was very sick and he never sinned. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says his soul was in bitterness even unto death. His soul was in such anguish that he sweat like drops of blood. So it must not be sin to not have a prospering soul. This is, this is the fear I have, though. If we become so used to that being normal Christianity, what it does do is it limits this. And we settle for this. When we could be bringing heaven into people's lives and instead we're always on the lookout trying to find out if anybody even cares about us. That's the importance of getting your soul healed. Are you with me, church? So, so Jesus had these four epic things in his life. One was birth. That's a big deal. You've got to be born again. And it only happen if your spirit gets a revelation from the spirit. The second big epic moment in his life was baptism into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is always designed for us to overcome temptations. And aren't you glad we can always overcome temptations? Because when we're fighting temptation and the devil, God's always fighting with us. And how do you overcome temptation? The word, obedience, worship. The word, obedience, worship. The word, obedience, worship. Wow. I like that. The word, obedience, worship. All from Deuteronomy. The word, obedience, worship. Wow. Satan has to flee. The, 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 the final big epic event in Jesus' life obviously was the crucifixion. And that's where God destroys sin and carnality in the flesh. And you just become a brand new creation because everything's passed away. And 
he just like redefines everything you are in your molecular, structural, spiritually speaking, the cross. Are you with me? But there's also this event in Jesus' life called the garden. The garden is the area that God has designed to deal with the issues that cause our soul to be sick. God doesn't deal with your soul on the cross. God doesn't deal with your soul in the wilderness. God deals with your soul in the garden. Every one of us, if you're a believer, your beginning was good. How many are glad you got saved? Come on. So that was good. Was that good? Was it good to be saved? And if you're really a Christian, come on, not a churchian. If you're really a Christian, you know your ending is going to be better than the beginning. Come on. Is there, is there a time coming where no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more separation, no more death forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever? That's a good ending. So the beginning and the ending don't cause us to have soul sickness. It's the middle. It's how is this going to work out? How's my marriage ever going to be healed? How are my kids ever going to fall in love with Jesus? How are those bills ever going to be paid? How's that disease ever going to be taken care of? How are those memories ever going to be overcome with hope when I'm so sad? We don't have a problem in our soul about how we started or how we know we're going to end. Our problem is how we're going to get through the middle stuff that we don't know how it's going to work out. Jesus knew the end. He knew how it was going to end. Come on, he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days, but that's it. Destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it. In three. Jesus knew the end, but he still got sick in his soul with how is this middle going to work out. So what did he do? He goes to the garden, takes his boys with him. Hey, I need some prayer. I want, can, I, can I point something out? I can't find any place in the Gospels in his three and a half years of ministry where he ever said, hey, I need some prayer. Until his soul was sick. You know how I know the soul is sick in the American church? Everybody needs prayer all the time. <laughs> Jesus is our example. He, listen, he never asked for prayer until he was in agony in his soul. Can you guys come with me and pray? Yes, that's good. You go, Peter, James, and John, I need you to come a little farther. I'd like to be in the little farther group. I'd like to see Jairus' daughter raised. I'd like to see the Mount of Transfiguration. I'd like to come a little farther, wouldn't you? Come on, come a little farther. Okay, pray. Just watch him pray, please. I'm really hurting. I don't know how I'm going to become sin. I just, I need your prayers, guys. I don't know how I'm going to go through this. Please pray. I mean, I'm in such agony. So there's a time that you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters. Come on, you guys. Then he leaves them, and he goes to God. And he says, Father, is there any way you could let this cup leave me? Nevertheless, I'll drink it, but, you know, I was thinking, 
I'm scared. This is hurting me. I didn't know it was going to be like this. I... It would be like us. It would be like us. Father, I ask you about my kid. Can I have an update? And you don't hear nothing. I ask you about that sickness. I ask you about that pain, God. How come you don't respond? How come I can't hear you? I'll keep doing your will, but this is not the way I want it. I want, can you just, and you don't hear nothing. Come on, man. When your soul's sick, silence is the deadliest pain. Because you want to hear him. Come on, you want to hear him. Because his children hear him, his sheep hear him. And when you don't hear him, it's like, where is he? Remember, I went back to Exodus 17, the last verse. The biggest question in Christianity, is God really among us? Because when you don't feel him, when you don't see how it's going to work out, come on, you guys. I don't know how it's going to work out in my life. I don't like living away from my family. I do this a lot. Hey, you have an update? When you don't hear from God and your soul's bitter, you go back to people. And you can tell the people whose souls are bitter, they're always going to this conference and this church and this group and this small group and this Bible study, and they're always just running around to and fro looking for something that's only going to come by a revelation to your spirit from the spirit. He goes back to his boys. They're sleeping, man. His soldiers are slumbering. You guys couldn't stay awake? This is the only time I've ever asked you that I need you in your sleep. God, is it possible to let this cup pass from me? I don't have anybody to turn to. My, my closest three that I brought farther are sleeping. I, you're my only. Can you? I don't hear you. I don't hear you. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Hey, guys, I really need your help. I'm not... You know what I find interesting? I need a Kleenex, Chatty. Thank you, son. You know what I find interesting is that he's praying a prayer three times that he knows God can't answer. God can't answer that prayer. He came to the planet to drink this cup. And he's so sick in his soul that he's praying prayers that he knows he can't answer. How many of us pray prayers all the time that God can't even answer? It's an evidence that maybe our soul needs to be healed. Come on, are you with me? This is not a condemnation message. If Jesus went through it, we're going to go through it. Come on. John 16, 33, in this life you'll have one trouble. No, that's a lie. In this life you'll have many troubles, but take heart. I've overcome it. <laughs> he goes back a third time. Still doesn't hear nothing. But somewhere between the third time and the third time, something changed. Because when you get to Matthew 26, 45... 
what he says to him the third time when he finds him sleeping. You know what he says to him? Just keep sleeping. I'm going to read it because you don't believe me. I'm going to read it. Matthew 26, 45. I read it this morning in my Bible reading. That's why I'm preaching this message. Then he came to the disciples. And the original language says halfway through verse 45, just keep on sleeping, therefore. You know, what he, you know what that tells me? He didn't need him anymore. Somewhere between the third time going to the Father and the third time coming back to the sleeping soldiers, he got a revelation that made it okay for him for them to sleep. He didn't need him anymore. Which means he won the battle in his soul. Paul prayed a similar prayer three times. Hey, can you take this thorn out of my flesh? I hate it, man. And after three times, God says, nope. My grace is sufficient. My strength is made so perfect when you're at your weakest, Paul. I'm going to keep you there because I like my strength to be made perfect in you all the time. You're a, you're a trophy for my grace and glory. <laughs> People say, well, what's that thorn? I don't know what it is, except I don't think it was physical because I got nine verses in the Old Testament that always talk about thorns in your side or your eyes, and it's always people or demons or spirits. What I believe Paul's thorn was is he used to kill Christians for a living and for 30 years of ministry that haunted him. Hey, Father, can you get that out of me? I can't believe I killed your people. Nope. I want you to remember it every day, Paul, because when you're at your brokenness and your weakness... And you're most vulnerable. That's when my strength is made the most perfect. My grace is sufficient for you. So I think between the third visit to the father and the third visit to his boys, when he said, just keep sleeping, he got the revelation. His grace is going to get me through. I need that revelation a lot in my life. I, I, I remember um, last year when I was um, in Murrieta, California. This is a good story. I'm going to tell two stories and we're going to wrap it up. Is that good? Two stories. And we'll be out here before noon. Everybody can get their hot dogs. It'll be good, good Father's Day. Good Father's Day. I was in Murrieta and my soul was on fire. I was seeing God do amazing things. I felt like things were going good. And I had encouragement. I was not discouraged. I was not depressed. I was not fearful. And this couple brings up a little boy and hands him in my arms, and he's blind and deaf. And they say, pray for him. We want him to see and hear. He's in my arms. And the Lord says, tell the mom and dad to stop worrying because if they'll believe, I can do it. The Lord tells me that right on the spot, in the service, right on the spot. Tell the mom and dad not to be afraid that I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to supply their needs because mama was worrying about provision. He said, well, how do you know that? My soul is prospering. When my soul is prospering, I can see things. When my soul is wounded, I'm looking for somebody that can see things that I need. When my soul is healed, man, I can just see things. It's not even fair. But when my soul is sick, I'm praying that somebody could see me. So I'm holding this baby. I looked at the mom and I said, ma'am, 
I don't know you, except I know you're scared to death of how you're going to make it, but God wants you to know you can trust him with all your provision. The moment I said that, she fell into her husband's arms. God says, now pray for the boy, I'm going to heal him. So I prayed, and that night they brought the boy back, and he could see and hear. I was sitting in a, in, a, in a house in Medford, Oregon, and the lady that was entertaining us told me her neighbor was dying of stage four cancer. My soul was prospering, man. I mean, I just, there's times when you feel like you can walk on water. You can't, but you feel like it. You, you get it? It's like, because that's your perspective. That's what you feel. And I remember the Holy Spirit says to me, call that lady over, I'm going to heal her cancer. So I said to the lady entertaining us, can you call your neighbor over? I, I, God told me he's going to heal her today. What? Yeah. She called her over. I sat her in a chair. I spoke a couple words to her. She thought, how'd you know that? I said, I don't know, but God told me to tell you that. Your family thinks you're cuckoo because of your faith, and your husband thinks you're nuts, and, but God's going to heal you, and he's going to show them that you aren't cuckoo. You're the, like the most sane in the family. And she goes, oh, I needed to hear that. And so I grabbed her hands, and I said, Jesus already told me he's going to heal you, so you're going to be healed. And she goes, well, thank you. I didn't even pray for her. I just grabbed her hands. She had stage 4 cancer all through her whole body, up and down her spinal column, on all of her lymph nodes, all of her organs, her liver, her pancreas, her stomach. She had cancer everywhere. The next day was her PET scan. The next day. No cancer. Now, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? Listen, listen. How'd that happen? It's not me. It's not me, but if my soul's prospering, that means I could hear God. I could know if it was him saying, call a neighbor over or not. I mean, I could discern the spirits of my soul, because that would be prospering in all respects. And then a couple months ago, I was in Seattle, and I was getting ready to fly home. It was one of my favorite revivals of this whole year so far, because Todd Puckett's, you know, his church is just, they're a kingdom church, and it's easy to minister there. It's like, I, it doesn't matter what I say. It just happens. And so I went to the airport seven and a half hours early because I just have ADD, whatever. I mean, <laughs> I check my bag. And I'm, right, I'm flying American to Dallas, back to Kansas City, I get in at midnight. And I looked at the monitor. My flight's canceled. My, they have my bag. My soul's not doing good. I'm in anxiety. I'm in worry. It's got my CPAP. It's got my vitamins, it's got my underwear, it's got my clothes. I need my bag. So I go up to the lady at the America. I said, ma'am, I'm in trouble. I, got, I, got, I, I can't breathe without my machine. And, and I, I, she goes, it's a medical emergency. Yeah, it's a medical emergency. I, I just went along with her because she brought it up first. I didn't even think to say that. I said, yeah, it's a medical emergency. She goes, well, let me get on my manager. She called her manager. Her manager's name was Caleb. I love that name. Come on, man. He'll take the mountains. He promised me he'll get your bag, Mr. Bohai. But by the way, we have another seat on Alaskan that you could get on and get home at the same time. She said, what about my bag? No, no, no. We'll get your bag. Do you want this seat? Yes. And it's first class because I have to travel first class because I can't fit. I don't travel first class because I want to be luxurious. I can't fit. It's, I can't fit. Don't judge me. So they gave me a ticket, no cost ticket. So, but I got 
seven and a half hours, now I gotta wait nine hours because the plane leaves two hours later. And all I have is my Bible. Because I don't I check everything, man. I don't I don't want to carry nothing but my Bible, because I read my Bible, I just read, you know, I just read. I just read. And some guy walks up to me in the hospital in the airport and he sees my Bible. Every page is a sermon. Every single page is a sermon. Because I live in it. I don't have nothing else. It's my life. And this guy comes over my shoulder, he's heading to Dallas, and he goes, Man, I wish I had a Bible like that. I think I looked at him, I said, yeah. I didn't say nothing to him because I was so absorbed in my own worry about my stupid suitcase. I just came out of the best revival of the year and because my suitcase is in jeopardy, God draws a guy to me who just lost his wife and he wants a Bible like mine I don't give him the time of day because of the condition of my soul. I looked up at him and he goes, yeah, what do you do? (laughs) He asked me what I did. It's like, Jonah, pray to your God. I mean, it's like, are you kidding? I'm trying to hide. I don't want anybody to even know I'm a Christian. Why do I have my Bible on my lap? I don't want to answer questions. I want my bag. (laughs) It's just stupid. You know, it can be your bill. It can be your doctor's report. It can be the spout you had with your spouse. It can, it's just stupid. The things that take us out of soul prosperity and put us into soul sickness. Finally, I told him, I, I preach in services, and I just read the Bible a lot, and that's why it's marked. Huh? Have a good day, buddy. That's all I said to him. And he left, and the Holy Spirit says, man, oh, man, how are you doing? And I started crying. You see, what I thought I would do that day is I thought I would read like two and a half days of reading, which means I would get nothing out of it. But I just want to go through it to keep myself from being bored in the hospital so I can mark it off, you know, because I read the Old Testament every month and the New Testament twice a month. And so I just, I think I can do like two and a half days, man, because I got nine hours. <laughs> but I won't know anything because the condition of your soul determines what you can absorb into your spirit. And so I'm just going through religious emotions. And I miss somebody who God brings right to me. I couldn't even read my Bible the rest of the day. I just thought about, man, I wish I could be one of the four instead of the guy on the mat. You see, when I read Matthew 9 and Mark 2 and Luke 5, it never once says the guy did not want to come to Jesus. It just says he needed four people to help him, which means he probably wanted to get help. He just was too sick to know how to do it by himself. We're only doing as good as our soul's doing. Whether good or bad. And what you see and what you hear is usually the best indicator. 
If you hear the Father's whisper and you see what people need instead of what they are, if you see the real source, then probably your soul's doing okay. But if you're just all absorbed about how you can get your next fix and how you can get your next breakthrough and how you can get out of your season, then probably your soul's not doing good. And so I wanted to end the service on Father's Day. It's 11.53. I got time to pray. I want to pray for people who want their souls healed. You say, well, will it get healed forever? Well, it could, but I doubt it. Because to walk in the prosperity of your soul means you've got to keep walking in truth to truth to truth to truth to truth to truth. 24 years ago yesterday, my spirit was healed. How do you know your spirit's healed? The ache in your spirit is that your soul would always catch up to what your spirit knows to be reality. I've never lost the healing in my spirit. How do you know that? Because I've never been satisfied unless my soul is in unity with my spirit. I've lost healing in my soul multiple times in days, the same day. And I've walked in victory in my soul sometimes for months. And one word, one notice, one criticism, one worry. What would Cornerstone be like? is everybody in here was walking in a prospering soul. It, it, it's, it's unlimited potential. Amen? And so I'd like you to play, Chad, something while I pray. This, uh, this, uh, I know you guys always do altar calls. You always do altar calls. I watch your Facebook lives. You always do altar calls. I, I like altar calls for the right reason. I don't like them if it's just a culture. Because sometimes I think you can hide in an altar call. But I like them a lot because Chad said it, you know, we're triune, and sometimes just raising your hand changes something, right? And in John 1, remember when, when John heard the voice talking? It says he turned to see the voice. And he got the whole revelation of the book of Revelation just because he was willing to turn. So this morning, I think it's appropriate to step out want your soul healed come on your soul healed your mind your will your emotions your memories your hurts your disappointments it's it's your defense mechanism it's like it's like your dad did something and hurt you it's like your mom never affirmed you it's like your spouse like your husband always compares you to other women or your, your wife never affirms you. It doesn't matter. The things that wound your soul, what I want to do is I want to pray that God would restore our souls this morning. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. 
He heals our souls. Amen. So I don't want anybody to leave this morning that doesn't have a healed soul. And if you need God to heal your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, your memories, and you want him to restore your soul, then I want you to come up, and I'm going to pray a prayer of healing for people that want their souls healed. Can you come up? your soul's healed. Just come up and just kind of line the altar. I kind of like y'all to hold hands. That's okay. It's not quirky. You want your soul's healed. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your memories. I mean, there's hurt here, guys. There's hurt. There's wounds in this church. What, what Pastor Scott's trying to do is probably maybe the most important thing. You hear that, Scott? Probably it's the most important thing. There's wounds in this church. And it keeps us from flowing in the, the gifts and the fruit and the anointing and the discernment that God wants us to flow in as normal Christianity. And so, Father, I just want to come to you in the name of Jesus, your Son. I'm so thankful that he shows us you can get victory in a garden. The garden is where you bring ugly things and they become beautiful. Gethsemane literally means the oil press, the press, the garden area of our life where we struggle and pray that our souls will be healed is where God gets the anointing. It's where the anointing's released. It's where his glory's released. God, you know what each person needs. I just pray that they would get a revelation that your grace is sufficient. That you're going to bring them through. That you're never going to leave them. You're never going to forsake them. You're going to finish every single thing you started all the way through to the end. And so we can enjoy the middle (laughs) and not just always look forward to the end. Lord, Soul prosperity means you could actually enjoy the middle. And so, God, I just want to bless everybody in this room with soul prosperity and health. This whole church, every woman, every man, every boy, every girl, every pastor, every board member, every leader, every visitor, I pray that their souls would prosper and be in health so that every area is affected. Loose your spirit on us, God. Turn this sanctuary into a place of healing and wholeness where people are drawn here because people are healed here. I thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit for your anointing and I thank you Jesus for your sacrifice I love you and I thank you for touching everybody's soul and I pray this in Jesus name and if you receive this prayer just say amen amen you guys are dismissed